titled this message, Paul's Prayer for the Church at Ephesus. And that would be accurate, to be sure. But as any of us know, the inspired Word of God has a continuing aspect from not only the time Paul wrote this to the church at Ephesus, but continuing even now to the present day, so we could indeed say Paul's prayer for the church at Armona. So I just left it, Paul's prayer for the church. So have you, as you found the passage of Scripture, would you turn with me and stand together as we read verses 14 to 21 of the third chapter of the book of Ephesians. The scripture says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Lord, to the Father rather, of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for this reading, and I pray that as we seek for your Holy Spirit's illumination to guide us into this truth, is that we would be open to his direction, and that also, Lord, we would add to the seeking for knowledge of the scripture to make application of the, of the scriptures in our own personal lives. Help us, Lord, to understand that the Apostle Paul was indeed praying for the church at Ephesus, but under uh, uh, divine inspiration, the message makes application to us. We thank you, Lord, that he had that in his heart to pray for that church and ours as well. We pray that uh, we would uh, gather the, not only the information, but understand the spirit in which this was written for our personal spiritual benefit. For these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever watched a sunset so stunningly red, purple, and gold, you long to be a part of it? Or have you ever heard music so poignant and sweet that it made your heart ache? There's a yearning in every bit of material beauty because we sense that it's only a hint of a larger reality. Only the faintest suspicion of God's divine splendor. The greatness of God is higher than our words can reach, farther than our imaginations can stretch, vaster than our hearts can encompass. Even Paul, who we might consider uh, a poet laureate uh, apostle, if there ever was one, 
strained to express God's greatness in prayer that is deeper than any poetry. So as we look at this passage of Scripture in the third chapter of Ephesians, verses 14 to 21, it's as if we pass through a portal and step into warm, radiant, color-exploded light. And I hope that you understand, and as we go through the message and we read the verses uh, one by one as we go through it, is that you'll see the sense of the apostle as he's trying, as best he could at that time, to express the wonder of God. God's power, God's love, and ultimately God's glory stream out, lifting our hearts to unimaginable heights. Those of you who have been saved for a long time and have continued to day by day look into the power of the Word of God and uh, express your prayers unto the Lord Himself day by day, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You do. Because somehow or another, you make the definite distinction between our earthly walk in life and that our, our walk that we have with Christ. And that every single day can be an, an, an incredible journey into realizing His greatness. We can't obviously comprehend it 100%, and we, can, we never will in this flesh. One day we will. What an awesome uh, anticipation that is. So Paul's greatest prayer, the crowning prayer of the New Testament epistles, as I suggest, takes us to the heart of God, which is rich toward us beyond our ability to grasp it. So let's consider ourselves somewhat kneeling, if you will, next to Paul. Seeking to more deeply experience God's extravagant, unimaginable, glorious love. So, question is at this point, what prompted this prayer? Which had been mounting in Paul's heart, I, I would imagine, for some time. It was the awesomeness of God's mysterious plan to reconcile Jew and Gentile to himself through the grace of God in Christ and to unite members of Christ's church as equal to himself. Now, let's understand this. I am thrilled to be a part of uh, the work of Landmark Baptist. I know the church in Fresno where uh, we are still kind of members and, and so on. In the 17, nearly 17 years I pastored there, is I could tell, and I can tell it here too, is that this church makes no distinction uh, with respect to the outer layer, if you will, with respect to race and with respect to culture and, and so on. And the fact that we have such a diversity here uh, is remarkable, and that can only occur as a result of the grace of God. I know uh, one of the things that uh, our brethren in the South struggled with for a long time, and they're coming around finally, is the whole race issue. And having, I was born and raised in the South, Southern California, <laughs> okay? And I can tell you being raised in the 50s and 60s is that the way I was raised is there simply was not an issue with regard to race, none at all. 
And my dad insisted on that, and I appreciate the, the home that I was raised in, and so it's never been an issue. And I find here in California that it's not much of an issue either. I was a student at CMBI when John McClung and Leslie Smith and some other brethren uh, of uh, uh, the Black Brothers came as students in the school, and we got to know them, got to love them and appreciate them, and especially the fact that they had a hunger for the truth. And I appreciate those uh, seminary instructors that took the time and were patient to show those brethren who had come out of error the, the truths of the Word of God and the truth of the New Testament church. And I'm so thankful that they uh, came to a knowledge of the truth. And Brother John McClung, of course, he's with the Lord. Brother Laverne Clark, this last year, he came, he went home to be with the Lord. And, and some of the others are, are still contending for the faith once and for all delivered unto the saints. Thank the Lord for that. The reason that the Apostle Paul uh, was prompted for this prayer is stated in verse 1 of chapter 3 and to which he picked up again in the 14th verse. Going back to verse number 1, the Bible says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And then back to verse 14, which is in our reading. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and look to 15 that kind of completes the thought. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. How appropriate to come before the Father, since through Christ we've been adopted into his forever family. But how unexpected for Paul to be on his knees. Unlike our day, when kneeling in prayer is fairly common, people in Paul's day usually stood while praying. When they knelt, they did so to show deep adoration, submissiveness, and urgency. And such was surely the case with the Apostle Paul at this point, who not only rejoiced over the new intimacy with the Lord, but also recognized that our Heavenly Father ruled the world, which owed him its obedience. So, that's the setting for Paul's prayer. Joyful, awestruck reverence. So let's dig a little deeper and more closely at what he asked for that particular church and for us as well. Paul basically prayed for four different things. That we should be strengthened through the Spirit's power, rooted and grounded in Christ's love, able to somehow grasp the immensity of that love, and finally to be filled with God's own fullness. And we'll explain as we go. As if spying one gem in a sparkling treasure trove, Paul first picked up the Spirit's strengthening power from the gleaming mountain of God's riches as we read again verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. 
All right. That being said, let's ask a few rhetorical questions. What exactly are the riches of his glory? It is everything in God that renders him glorious, the proper object of adoration. The apostle prayed that God would deal with his people according to the inexhaustible supply of grace and power which constitutes his glory and makes him the source of all that's good to his saints. Paul prayed that from out of all God's goodness, the Lord would strengthen our inner person, our innermost being made alive in Christ and salvation and empowered as church saints by the Holy Spirit. Understand this as a basic Bible doctrine, and it is one of those that's uh, never to be compromised because we have some that don't hold to it. And that is this, that the Holy Spirit personally indwells every single child of God at the point of saving faith. Whether they're in the New Testament church or not, and some brethren, unfortunately, who hold to the opposite view, they say, well, the Holy Spirit only indwells the church. The Holy Spirit does have a very special ministry for the New Testament church, as what the, uh, what the Greek New Testament says is the parakletos, the one who goes alongside the church to empower her and to lead her into all truth. So that one's free. <laughs> Interestingly enough, this power, as the Bible says, is the opposite of what happens when we lose heart. We notice in verse 13, the scripture says, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Instead of giving in and giving up when times get tough, Paul wanted us to grow in the Spirit's power, to turn more and more to God and his sustaining hope. And the Apostle Paul amplified that in the first part of the next verse, as he says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. As born-again Christians, Christ already lives in our hearts through his Spirit. That happens at the moment of our salvation. What Paul meant by dwell was that through our ever-maturing faith, we would let Christ more and more be at home in us, if you will. Okay? That we would more consistently put and also keep Christ at the center of our lives, letting him shape our attitudes our choices, and form us into his likeness. And that ultimately is the goal, at least uh, the goals of one aspect, of why we're saved in the first, first place, that we might be conformed to the image of his son. The latter part of verse 17, when it talks about rooted and grounded in love, what does that mean? What does it mean to be rooted and grounded in love? In Jesus' love. 
The word rooted is, comes from a word which brings to mind plants with the roots shooting deep into rich earth to be nourished and grow tall and strong. We can see this going all the way back to the first psalm. Okay, when the psalmist indeed uh, indicated that like that tree, a life rooted in Christ, Christ's love also feeds and shelters others. Okay, the idea which is firmly planted by streams of water. I think I mentioned to you that when my oldest son took third year Hebrew from me, he, was, he took the same time Brother Jimmy Nixon did, and what they would do is they would choose an Old Testament book uh, to exegete or, or to do verse-by-verse -verse analysis, if you will. And when he got to the very uh, first psalm and dealt with verse 3, and he shall be like a tree planted by the uh, rivers of water. And he looked at that verse, and I mean, he was very excited about it, but he was very firm in his conviction as well. He said, Dad, that kind of gives the idea of transplantation. A tree that is originally in the desert, that is not thriving at all because of lack of nutrition and certainly lack of water. And said, it's just like the Lord uproots that tree and transplants it by the rivers of water where the real water of life can be given and provide better fruit and certainly greater shelter. A life rooted in Christ's love also feeds and shelters others, and it too is firmly planted and refreshed constantly by the fact, day by day, that we acknowledge God's love for us. And by the way, that's not a one-time deal. That's an everyday experience. The word grounded comes from a word which really conveys the same idea, but with building imagery. The very foundation of our lives in Christ is love. It's the only thing on earth that can hold the body of Christ together and see the New Testament assembly through difficult and tough times. Think about that. There's a lot of things that make a New Testament church what she is, okay? Not the least of which is solid doctrinal truth. That's very important. But when it comes right down to the times when a New Testament church goes through difficult times and so on, ultimately, it's the love of Christ that ministers to that body and members in particular to hold them together through those difficult moments. Next, we talk about uh, comprehending the immensity of Christ's love. Uh, several months ago, I preached a message out of 1 John chapter 3, where uh, the title of the message was God's Indescribable and Indefinable Love. It's that way because it's so immense. It goes well beyond our finite minds to fully appreciate it. So Paul next prayed that we would be able to somehow comprehend or grasp just how powerful, just how infinite, and just how utterly sufficient Christ's love is as we go back to verse 18. That we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width 
and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now the word know here is, the, I believe, the word gnosko, and that has to do with knowledge by experience. And that's, again, it's not a one-time deal. It's day by day as we allow God's Spirit to minister to our hearts, as we study and uh, meditate on the Word, and as we pray. And we have those singular daily moments when we're, we are really, really connected to God. That's when the... Uh, comprehension or the grasping of the love of Christ really is. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. The love that brought Jesus from heaven to earth and ultimately to the cross for us is absolutely limitless. Christ's love is total, it's complete, it is eternal, and it is all-encompassing. And it reaches every corner of our experience. It is wide, which, uh, which covers the breadth of our own experience and reaching out to the entire world. It's long, continuing the length of our lives and on into eternity. It is high, rising to the heights of our celebration and elation. His love is deep, reaching to the depths of our discouragement, our despair, and yes, even death. So here's the next question. How can we possibly know this love that surpasses knowledge? Obviously, we can't completely. Not with our finite minds and experiences. And we'll probably spend eternity searching out the vast magnitude of Christ's love. Because you know what? According to the last verse, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when it talks about the three remaining manifestation sign gifts, faith, hope, and love, there's going to come a time when faith and hope are no longer needed. Faith will be turned aside. Hope will be turned into reality, but throughout eternity, the gift of love will endure. Isn't that great? <laughs> wow. But here's what we can do in the meantime. We can continually draw our minds back to all that Christ has done for us and why he's done it. And we can train our heart's eyes to see his love for others. And my, 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 when we get to the issue of fulfilling the Great Commission, this is such a necessary aspect. The Bible says for all the saints, with no barriers of race, background, gender, or age. And with that, we can follow the Spirit's tutoring so we love a little more like Jesus loves. Now, the last part of verse 19 is, theologically troubling to some we'll try to seek for God to give us the understanding here it says to fill with God's own fullness this is an amazing one that Paul said in the latter part of verse 19 no longer are we empty beggars hungering weak alone in the dark 
because of Christ's immeasurable love, we have the bread of life and the resurrection power of the Spirit. Notice again verses 19 and 20. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Wow. We've been made a part of God's forever family and a part of the Lord's body, the church. Two different things, okay? The church and set to be in his marvelous light. Now, when we're talking about uh, the twofold aspect of our uh, new nature in Christ, one, that we're children of God, and that all of us are children of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's unequivocal. And then, to take the next step, to be a true follower of the Lord, a disciple, uh, and continue learning uh, the ways of the Lord, and so on, and we, be, we covenant together as a part of a New Testament assembly, and that kind of opens up some more things. It certainly does. Paul had prayed that we would be rooted and grounded in this love, that we would somehow comprehend its infiniteness. And at that point, he prayed that we'd be flooded with it. Can you imagine? Filled to the capacity of God's own fullness. Now, someone asked one time, uh, you know, and in fact, it was kind of alluded to in the Sunday school class this morning, you know, about uh, those that hold to a, uh, a little different uh, idea about holiness and uh, you know, separation and so on. And the question is then begged, how can we be filled with the Spirit? The answer is this. Number one, we receive all of the Holy Spirit personally, we ever will, at the point of saving faith. But so the question is not so much how much of the Spirit we have, but rather how much the Spirit has of us. See the difference? Okay, a person who is quenching the Spirit, might be a believer, might be someone born again, is that they're going to be carnally motivated, and they're going to turn more and more away from the, the exact things we're talking about this morning out of this text. But for the person who yields themselves to the Spirit, they're the ones that are not only going to comprehend this, they're going to experience it. And that's ultimately the goal. So that certainly does surpass our ability to comprehend it, doesn't it? God's greatness overwhelmed the Apostle Paul, and by the way, it overwhelms us when we get right down to it. So he turned his eyes, and he turned ours as well, from ourselves to the one who deserves our worship and all the glory. Verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus 
to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We've been made a part of God's forever family, salvation, and if we've submitted to scriptural baptism and covenanted with the New Testament church, we're part of the Lord's body, the church, and set in his marvelous light. We thank God for that. This is our God, the one who is so far ahead of us that his works outrun the farthest stretches of our imaginations. The one who does far more abundantly, superabundantly, according to the text of Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 9. The prophet says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And yet in spite of that, to some degree, he has chosen to work through us, okay? His church, to bring about his new redeeming love to the lost masses. Praise him for the mystery of his grace manifested in the Lord's church. Now, in verse 21, as a Greek teacher and so on, one of the things you have to deal with when you're looking into the original language is to understand this. While English has a distinctive word order and it never really changes, subject, verb, object, okay? In Greek, it kind of does. In fact, it, it, its word order starts really from conjunctions. But one of the things that is avidly found in both Greek and Hebrew is the fact that sometimes word order is uh, arranged according to emphasis. Now notice in verse 21, uh, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to just simply say, based on the emphasis and the fact that the statement there in the first part of the verse, to him be glory in the church, is the emphasis is actually Jesus. To him. Okay? Now while it is true, uh, without any question, that the vast amount of glory to be given the Lord Jesus is through his New Testament church. I unequivocally hold to that. But yet, the emphasis in this verse has to do the fact of not uh, that as much as it is the fact that the glory to be given from the church is to be given to him. Glory shouldn't be given to the pastor. Shouldn't be given to any of the members. All glory through the church is to be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we praise him for the mystery of his grace manifested in the assembly of the Lord. Praise him for creating a place bought by Christ's blood where Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, and every race and nationality can know the unity and harmony that will prevail when God's love through Jesus Christ prevails. Here alone, the awesomeness of God's pervasive love erases all hostility and resistance. 
so we praise him for the gift of salvation and the reconciliation uh, in Christ that we receive. We praise him for he alone has made union and peace between warring parties possible. Praise him for all people everywhere through all time. And just as his gifts are boundless, so are the people he gives them to. What a great passage for us to meditate on, memorize, and for sure just really uh, allow to permeate our hearts. Because this passage encourages and strengthens us no matter what situation we're in, but it's particularly healing when we're in the throes of discouragement. When we've lost our inner energy and our motivation in our walk with Christ, we can remember that he wants to empower us as we again look in verse number 16 of our text. Here the Bible says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. This reminds me, of course, and I'm sure many of you, what the uh, prophet to Isaiah said in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, verses 28 to 31. Here the Bible says this. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But, and here's the contingency, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When we lose touch with reality and feel com completely unloved and uncared for, he roots and grounds us in the love of Christ. 17 again. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 and verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Amen. When our minds are forged and we don't remember what we once knew so very well, and that can happen. We can kind of uh, lose sight of some things if we're not uh, very careful. He recenters our thoughts on the immensity of his all-embracing love. 18 again, that he may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And when we lose our way with him and feel empty, he fills us again from the bounty 
of his presence, the last part of 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so as, as we end the message today, we should take our cue from the Apostle Paul and focus our minds on the Lord's goodness, spending a while in prayer of thanksgiving. You know, sometimes our prayer lives, if we're not careful, are all about supplication. The needs that we have and uh, things that we desire, and that's all fine and well. But more often than not, that should always be the very end of the prayer when we first of all just give thanksgiving unto the Lord for what he's done and who he is. That's a wonderful thing to contemplate. Praise the Lord for all he has done and all he will do. And let him fill your heart with his grace, his hope, and definitely his love. Before we proceed with uh, the furtherance of this idea for members of the Lord's Assembly and uh, people who are saved, Understand this, if you are lost and undone, much of the message today was focused upon those who were members of the Ephesus church and even the church here. And so that's talking about the continuation and the growth of love permeating the heart of a born-again believer. But understand this, too, is that prior to experiencing that, once we're saved by grace, just know that the the very act of God that provided the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for the ultimate salvation of believing sinners was love. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I want you to think about that because you, you visualize in your mind the Savior suspended between heaven and earth on that cruel cross after he'd been beaten violently, after he had lost a lot of his blood, and after people mocked him and spat upon him as they walked by, and he mentioned this statement, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then as he's dying and he's shifting his weight because of the agonizing physical pain that's going on. There was a thief, two thieves actually, one on either side of him, and one of them continued to mock as he did before, but one of them realized his errant ways, and he repented, referred to as the penitent thief. And in spite of a life long of sin and uh, illegality and so on, he mentioned this one thing to the Lord. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, the Lord could have, according to some theology, well, let's see. You know what? You were never baptized as a child. Now, let's see some other things here. You know, you didn't live a very good life. So I, I don't think so. That's not what Jesus said, thank the Lord. Jesus said, today, you shall be with me in paradise over a simple act of repentance. Lord, remember me. Because he had mentioned to the other thief who was continuing to mock, he said, this man's done nothing wrong, speaking of Jesus. He says, we deserve what we're getting. And that's when he turned 
to the Lord. And praise the Lord when we enter the gates of heaven, that penitent thief is going to be one of those in heaven's glory. No, he wasn't a good man, ultimately, as we recount his life. But that single act of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ guaranteed what Jesus said. Today, you will be with me in paradise. For those of you who are not yet saved by the grace of God, let me assure you, likewise, is that when you come to terms with the reality that you are indeed a sinner by nature, and that you say, okay, you, you've indicated that uh, Jesus dying on the cross was a demonstration of the love of God, and truly it was. But listen, in that single moment, in spite of recounting maybe all the sins in your lifetime, rather than do that, you can say, Lord, I turn from my sinful ways, and I turn to you, and I receive Jesus into my heart as my personal Savior the Bible says at that given point is that you will be given the gift of eternal life, much like that penitent thief. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we anticipate the uh, invitations part of the service. Thank you, Father, for the message. We thank you for this particular text as we sought to delve into it and gain a greater appreciation for what it says and what it can mean to us as we move forward. I pray, dear God, that uh, we've been faithful to the task to seek to glorify Christ in all that we say or do, and I pray that there will be a response to bring glory and honor to Christ with lost souls being saved and those who are saved beginning to live like they're saved and committing themselves to become members of this new Bethlehem Church and going on from here to enjoy the relationship that Christ has provided them. For all these things we ask in the wonderful and matchless name of Christ.